episode 28. Colonial clothing disappears. A hush in the park. Bunnies take over. Foes ride bikes instead of horses. We're back in the future. Greetings, and welcome into the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This week, we show our local pride colors with a rainbow sangria, alcoholic or non, depending on how you fly. We also took a trip to my little garden, which inspired the jam in this episode. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. These busy bees are the pollinators of the varied garden that is the Patuxent General. Without them, we would just be dried stems whistling in the wind. So thank you. And if you would like to be one of these folk, the link is in the show notes, and we would love to hear from you. And if you would like to be one of these folks, the links are in the show notes, and we would love to have you join our Patreon family. You receive extra content and can interact with Jess personally with your questions. But for right now, let's talk about Rainbow Sangria. This fabulous recipe can be done by the pitcher or as a make-ahead single glass for some table drama. If it sits for about an hour before, then you really have something tasty. By the glass, you will want the freshest fruits for display purposes and to last in the glass as you refill with the wine mixture. But by the pitcher, you can kind of play it fast and loose. Not to mention, frozen berries keep it cold without diluting your drink. All right. For this drink, you will need two cups of Black Beauty grapes, two cups of blueberries, two kiwi peeled and thinly sliced, two and one half cups pineapple chunks, two cups mandarin orange slices, three cups quartered hulled strawberries, two limes, three tablespoons of honey, one bottle of wine. We are using a local red, but a sparkling rosé or a dry white would be lovely. One cup brandy, mine is raspberry two big pitchers, and some lovely good-sized glasses. The next part depends upon how you are serving. If your pitcher is going to sit out with you and your guests for a bit, I would freeze the grapes, pineapple, and strawberries the night before so that you could keep your pitcher cold while you're chatting. However, if you're going to keep it in your refrigerator, just go for fresh. Let's do the wine mix first in a pitcher kept cold. Put the juices of two limes, the bottle of wine, the brandy, and the honey. Stir until honey is dissolved. Set aside and chill while you build the display pitcher or glasses. Start with the darkest, the Black Beauty grapes. You only need about a cup of each fruit. The rest is for the individual glasses. Build your layers as you choose, but strawberries stay whole better on top. Fill the pitcher or glasses and let sit in the refrigerator for an hour. This is for sipping, guys. Uh, This is also why you should make the wine mix separate first. You can always make some more. If you would like a teetotaling version, omit the wine and brandy and fill with lemonade and seltzer instead. Astound your friends and enjoy. Garden Jam My family and I have been gardening in the local community garden for many years now. And it's important not to let anything go to waste. This season, it rained a good amount, and I also watered the fruits, hopefully, while carefully tucking them in straw to keep the fruits off the dirt. Well, boy, did that pay off. I'm swimming in strawberries, rhubarb, and mint, and the taste was off the hook. 
So, without too much freaking out, you're right. I collected about four cups of strawberries, four long stems of rhubarb, and two long stems of mint, good size. Then I tried not to run home to make Jess's garden jam. For this slamming recipe, you will need four large rhubarb stems, not the leaves, which are poisonous, four cups of hulled half strawberries, two large stems of mint or a good-sized bunch from the store, one cup sugar, and the zest of one lemon. You should have one or two ball canning jars and lids. This recipe is super quick to make and even quicker to disappear. I rinsed and cut the rhubarb into one-inch pieces and put them into a deep saucepan, then added the strawberries and the sugar. Cook this on medium-low heat while stirring often. Don't leave. If it looks too dry and it is on high heat, it could burn. But if you keep it down to medium-low and let it melt gently, you're in business. Continue to cook until reduced by half. Make sure your jars are well washed and warm. Then put in the zest and finely chopped mint. Then pour in half of the hot mixture into each jar. When cool, lid and refrigerate. You are meant to be blown away by each bite of sweet tart freshness. Put it on pancakes like we do, or in a cocktail, or just oatmeal or toast. But most of all, enjoy this taste of summer. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. Ten dollars gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at eight eight one Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now for our House on the Corner series, the continuing reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H. P. Lovecraft, Chapter Four, Section Five. A nightmare and a cataclysm now swiftly followed that hideous experience, which has left its indelible mark of fear on the soul of Marinus Bickwell Willett, and has added a decade to the visible age of one whose youth was even then far behind. Doctor Willett had conferred at length with Mister Ward and had come to an agreement with him on several points, which both felt the alienists would ridicule. There was, they conceded, a terrible movement alive in the world, whose direct connection with a necromancy even older than the Salem witchcraft could not be doubted. That at least two living men, and one other of whom they dared not think, was in absolute possession of minds or personalities that had functioned as early as 1690 or before, was likewise almost unassailably proven, even in the face of all known natural laws. What these horrible creatures, and Charles Ward as well, were doing or trying to do seemed fairly clear from their letters and from every bit of light, both old and new, which had filtered upon the case. They were robbing the tombs of all the ages, including those of the world's wisest and greatest men, in the hopes of recovering from the bygone ashes some vestige of consciousness and lore, which had once animated and informed them. 
A hideous traffic was going on amongst these nightmare ghouls, whereby illustrious bones were bartered with the calm calculativeness of schoolboys swapping books. And from what was extorted from the century dust, there was anticipated a power and a wisdom beyond anything which the cosmos had ever concerted in one man or group. They had found unholy ways to keep their brains alive, either in the same body or different bodies, and had evidently achieved a way of tapping the consciousness of the dead whom they had gathered together. There had, it seemed, been some truth in chimerical old Borellus when he wrote of preparing even the most antique remains, certain essential salts from which the shade of the long-dead living might be raised up. There was a formula for evoking such a shade, and another for putting it down, and it had now been so perfected that it could be taught successfully. One must be careful about evocations, for the markers of old graves were not always accurate. Willette and Mr. Ward shivered as they passed from conclusion to conclusion. Things, presences, or voices of some sort could be drawn down from unknown parts as well as from the grave, and in this process also one must be careful. Joseph Kerwin had undubitably evoked many forbidden things, and as for Charles, what might one think of him? What forces outside the spheres had reached him from Joseph Kerwin's day and turned his mind on forgotten things? He had been led to find certain directions, and he had used them. He had talked with the man of horror in Prague and stayed long with the creature in the mountains of Transylvania, and he must have found the grave of Joseph Kerwin at last. That newspaper item and what his mother heard in the night were too significant to overlook. Then he had summoned something, and it must have come. That mighty voice aloft on Good Friday and those different tones in the locked attic laboratory? What were they like with their depth and hollowness? Was there not here some awful foreshadowing of the dreaded stranger Dr. Allen with his spectral bass? Yes, that was what Mr. Ward had felt with vague horror in his single talk with a man, if man he were over the telephone. What hellish consciousness or voice, what morbid shade or presence had come to answer Charles Ward's secret rights behind that locked door? Those voices heard an argument, must have it read for three months. Good God, was that not just before the vampirism broke out? The rifling of Ezra Whedon's ancient grave and the cries later in Patuxet, whose mind had planned the vengeance and rediscovered the shunned seat of elder blasphemies? And then the bungalow and the bearded stranger and the gossip and the fear. The final madness of Charles neither father nor doctor could attempt to explain, but they did feel sure that the mind of Joseph Kerwin had come to earth again and was following its ancient morbidities. Was demonic possession and truth a possibility? Alan had something to do with it. And the detectives must find out more about one whose existence menaced the young man's life. In the meantime, since the existence of some vast crypt beyond the bungalow seemed virtually beyond dispute, some effort must be made to find it. Let and Mr. Ward, conscious of the skeptical attitude of the alienists, resolved during their final conference to undertake a joint secret exploration of unparalleled thoroughness and agreed to meet at the bungalow on the following morning with valises and certain tools and accessories suited to archaeological search and underground exploration. 
The morning of April 6 dawned clear, and both explorers were at the bungalow by 10 o'clock. Mr. Ward had a key, and the entry and cursory survey were made. From the disorganized condition of Dr. Allen's room, it was obvious that the detectives had been there before, and the later searchers hoped that they had found some clue which might prove of value. Of course, the main business lay in the cellar. So thither they descended without much delay, again making the circuit which they had vainly made before in the presence of the mad young owner. For a time, everything seemed baffling, each inch of the earthen floor and stone walls having so solid and innocuous an aspect that the thought of a yawning aperture was scarcely to be entertained. Willette reflected that since the original cellar was dug without knowledge of any catacombs beneath, the beginning of the passage would represent the strictly modern delving of young Ward and his associates, where they had probed for the ancient vaults whose rumor could have reached them by no wholesome means. The doctor tried to put himself in Charles' place to see how a delver would be likely to start, but could not gain much inspiration from this method. Then, he decided on elimination as a policy, and went carefully over the whole subterranean surface, both vertical and horizontal, trying to account for each inch separately. He was soon substantially narrowed down, and at last had nothing left but a small platform before the wash tubs, which he had tried once before in vain. Now, experimenting in every possible way and exerting a double strength, he finally found that the top did indeed turn and slide horizontally on a corner pivot. Beneath it lay a trim, concrete surface with an iron manhole to which Mr. Ward at once rushed with excited zeal. The cover was not hard to lift, and the father had quite removed it when Willette noticed the queerness of his aspect. He was swaying and nodding dizzily in the gust of noxious air which swept up from the black pit beneath the doctor's soon-realized ample cause. In a moment, Dr. Willette had his fainting companion on the floor above and was reviving him with cold water. Mr. Ward responded feebly, but it could be seen that the meftic blast from the crypt had in some way gravely sickened him. Wishing to take no chances, Willette hastened out to Broad Street for a taxicab and soon dispatched the sufferer home, despite his weak-voiced protests. After which, he produced an electric torch, covered his nostrils with a band of sterile gauze, and descended once more to peer into the newfound depths. The foul air was now slightly abated, and Willette was able to send a beam of light down the Stygian hole. For about ten feet, he saw, it was a sheer cylindrical drop with concrete walls and an iron ladder, after which the hole appeared to strike a flight of old stone steps, which must originally have emerged to earth somewhat southwest of the present building. We would like to thank you again for joining us here at the PG. If you have any suggestions, questions, ghost stories, or would like to have our pop-up general store at your event, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. I can't wait to join you here next week at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>